Today's reading is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and it's on page 8 in your worship folder. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And when he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. June 1st, 1999, and the phenomenon of Harry Potter has already begun to take over the world. I was a youth pastor in a church in Indianapolis, and I had kind of tried to develop this side gig so that I could make a little extra cash. And so I had started an organization that was called Youth Light, helping parents navigate culture for their youth. And I thought, what a great idea it would be for me to go to a bookstore at midnight because the book was being released June 2nd, the second book, which is Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And so I went to Barnes & Noble, which is this bookstore in the States, and I, I watched as all these children and adults came in. And they started gathering at about 9.30. And they were gathered around, and some of them were dressed up, and some of them already had their scarves and their emblems and Slytherin and Gryffindor and all that. They were anticipating and waiting to get a book to come out. They couldn't wait for it to be released. People had already pre-bought the book so that they were waiting in line. Like, J.K. Rollins wasn't there. They weren't getting signatures. They weren't meeting somebody who eventually might play somebody in the movie. They were just going for the book. And so for whatever reason, that it was so uh, appealing to so many people, maybe maybe it was the story of a a little orphan boy who's raised up underneath a, a staircase and finds out eventually that he's a wizard. Maybe it was the fact that there's this redemption at the end of the book, first book, spoiler alert, if you haven't read it, where you get to hear, remember, it's a long time ago, so that's on you. (laughs) 
But what we do know is this, that much like TikTok today, which has caused children to look like they're having epileptic fits while they're walking, walking around, we heard children speaking different languages like crazy as they were trying to cast spells on one another. Because this idea of wizardry or magic or something that could take something that wasn't and make it something else or to transform myself or just to open the door by saying simple words is amazing. And oftentimes that's what we think of when we think about miracle workers. We think about magicians or wizards or those that somehow take supernatural forces and cause them to wreak havoc in the natural world if they are malcontent or they bring about good things if they are good wizards. So Jesus comes. And it's said that he's a miracle worker. He is something beyond. And you might hear that and think to yourself, yeah, yeah, miracle worker, okay, okay. I mean, that's like Harry Potter. I mean, that's fictional. That's something that's out there that, that they put in so that it would sort of bolster the case of who he claimed to be. Or, or maybe you're somebody who's like very aware. I don't know. There's things that happen in this world I can never figure out. So sure, something like that could happen. Why not something like miracles could take place. But if you are one of those people who kind of think to yourself, I don't know that that's actually accurate, and it's just something that was put in that, those, uh, those biographies, those four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that those guys wrote much years later to kind of bolster the case. Let, let, let me give you a quote from John Dixon in his book, The Doubter's Guide to Jesus. He points out that, in fact, when Jesus was walking around, there were not that many miracle workers that there weren't those that were doing a lot of things that Jesus was doing. And so he was unique in that in his own time. And he says, in fact, Jesus did a lot of miracles, if you consider. Scholarly, they think about 39 when they read the gospel accounts. He said the unique thing, though, about that versus all those other sort of non-miracle workers that have been out there, how few they are, is that Jesus's were always attributed to his own power. Not to grabbing some power out here and making something happen, but that it was flowing through Christ himself. You see, he restores the leper with his touch, a crippled man with his word, a dead girl with a command, a hemorrhaging woman by contacting just his robe, a demon-crazed man with a simple rebuke, and so on. That it's through his own power. But John's a believer, a walker with Jesus, a God-botherer. And so he goes on to quote John Meyer, who wrote a book called The Marginal Jew, Rethinking the Historical Jesus, who is someone who's not trying to prove that Jesus is divine by any stretch of the imagination. But he's just trying to figure out, is there really a person named Jesus? It's a six-volume set. I've not read it all, but I've picked out quotes from it. This is what he said. The miracle traditions about Jesus' public ministry are already so widely attested to in various sources and literary forms by the end of the first Christian generation that the total fabrication by the early church is, practically speaking, impossible. They couldn't have made it up. Put dramatically, but without too much exaggeration, 
If the miracle tradition from Jesus' public ministry were to be rejected in toto as unhistorical, so should every other gospel tradition about him. For if the criteria of historicity does not work in the case of the miracle tradition, where multiples attest rationale is so massive and the coherence of these tells about Jesus are so impressive, there is no reason to expect them to work anywhere else. The quest would simply have to be abandoned. Then he says this, needless to say, that is not the conclusion we have reached here. So what John is saying is that these miracles or the miracle tradition of Jesus as a miracle worker has to be believed. Now, he might go on to say, I'm not sure how those things happened. I don't know if it was through his own power or what it was. But he would say, look, when we look through history, we have to say Jesus was a man who walked on earth historically. And in him, there was something happening that was changing people's lives differently than anybody else that was around miraculously even, even though it would be hard for him to follow that. And so there's lots of places we could go in Scripture to find this place about Jesus being a miracle worker. But I think Mark chapter 2 is the best place for us to land. And here's the reason why. It tells us a story of why Jesus maybe was doing these miracles. It reveals to us something that is going on there that allows us to know that Jesus is much more than just a miracle worker. Let's look at the text again as we dig deep into it. Jesus has been away. He comes back to Capernaum. He's at a home. Could be his home. It could be other people's homes. Maybe Peter's mother-in-law's home. And they're there and he's teaching and he's speaking and people know that he's there. And so people are gathering around to hear what Jesus is going to say. They can't wait to hear what he's going to say. And it's so crowded that people can't even get in the doors anymore. But already at this point, there's this thing that has been said about Jesus, that he's a miracle worker. And so there's a group of men who have a friend who's a paralytic. He can't move. And they think to themselves, if we can get him to Jesus, then Jesus will be able to help him. Jesus will be able to heal and he will be able to walk and move and have a more fulfilled life. And so they pick up his mat and they carry him towards the house. And as they get closer to the house, you can assume that they begin to hear the din of the crowd. There are people going, what was that that Jesus said? I can't hear what he said. And they're kind of moving and shuffling around. And there are those who are wanting to get a little bit closer. And so they're blocking the doors and they're blocking the windows. And they can just anticipate and they hear the din and they get close and they think, well, maybe if we show them that we have our friend on this mat, they'll move around, right? Because they're listening to Jesus, this guy who's talking about all the good things in the world. And so they walk up and people are like, get that paralytic away from us, right? They don't move. They don't part the seas. They don't let him come in, but they don't give up. They go up to the roof. We don't know how they got up to the roof. We don't know if they threw him up there. That would have been weird. We don't know if they went over to the neighbor's house and climbed through their house and up some staircase over the roof and jumped over. We don't know if there was a ladder and they kind of walked up and put him there. But we do know that once they was on the roof, that they began to dig through the roof. Now, some would say that in those styles of houses, the roof was probably about two feet thick. That it was thatch and then they put dirt on top of it. And then in the springtime, green grass would grow and it would be really pretty. So they literally dug through dirt to open up a hole for them to drop their friend in. 
And as they drop their friend in, there's Jesus, and he sees them coming through. Surely he'd been sort of interrupted before as dirt was hitting his head. Right? Those long locks, right, that he had? Probably not. And he sees him. And what does he say to him? He sees the faith of the man and the faith of the four friends, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I was the paralytic man, I think I would probably think to myself immediately, thanks, but I'd like to move. But he says, your sins are forgiven. And then there's scribes who are probably sitting down because they have the place of honor in the house. And they're thinking to themselves in their minds, in their hearts, this is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knows that that's what they're thinking. And so he looks at them and says, why do you think this? Do you think that it is easier for the Son of Man to tell a paralytic to get up and walk than to forgive sins? But so you will know that I have the authority to do this, that the Son of Man has authority to do this. Get up and walk. And then the guy's like, okay. (laughs) And he gets up and he walks out of the house. And people are amazed. The first thing that we recognize about Jesus being more than a miracle worker is this. He does this act to proclaim his personhood who he is, right? Jesus is looking out and he says, you think I'm one thing. Look, the guys who brought their friend, who loved their friend, who wanted the best for their friend, thought one thing about Jesus, that he was a miracle worker, that he was somebody who could help their friend walk today. But Jesus says, no, no, I'm much more than that. I am those who brings healing both externally and internally. I'm the one who takes the brokenness of the world and makes it right. I'm the one who says there is no longer separation between you and the creator of this universe. I'm the one who brings you into wholeness. It's interesting that he uses the phrase son of man because we have to jump back to Daniel because when he says that word son of man, Those who are there, those who are studied, and particularly the scribes, couldn't help but in their mind think about Daniel and what Daniel says in a prophecy in chapter 7. Well, it wasn't chapter 7 for him, but it's chapter 7 for us. He said this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus says to them, I am the Son of Man, don't you think that the Son of Man can forgive sins and heal this paralytic? He's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm the one who will bring wholeness back to this world. I am the God who created everything, who has decided to show up in flesh so that in my steadfast love, I can pursue you to bring you back into relationship with me. You see, Israel had failed miserably in their call by God to be a blessing to all those around them. They had built up a a whole system that allowed them to be those who are superior versus those who were not. And Jesus says, no, that's the brokenness I need to deal with. 
Yes, I do want to bring healing physically, but more importantly, I'm the one who can restore you to how you were created to be. So he says to them, I am the son of man. And he proclaims who he is. The second thing that he does here is he provides us a source of relentless hope. See, there's a place here where we see this story. These men are coming and this miracle happens. And very easily we can move from this place where it says, your sins are forgiven to get up and walk. Because we like the tangible thing, right? We like the thing that all of a sudden we see immediate results for. That's the reason why for me cooking a meal is so great. Because I start with things that are there, I take time making that meal, I present it to other people, and nine times out of ten, people go, that's pretty great. It's immediate, and the satisfaction is great. But parenting, well, parenting, there's all sorts of give and take that takes place, right? It's almost as if we wish we could have an automatic charger for our kids and just plug them into the outlet and let them come to be who they're supposed to be. Because it's hard work. And each day we go and we see this walking forward and walking back. And it just doesn't seem to happen. Why? Because we're not trying to do something externally to them. We're trying to help their hearts be something different. And we don't get to see that. But in this, we see Jesus giving us a pathway for hope. A movement to a different place. Philip Yancey wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew. And in this book, he has a chapter on miracles. Towards the end of that chapter, he says this. Why then are there any miracles? Did they make any difference? I readily concede that Jesus, with a few dozen healings and a handful of resurrections from the dead, did little to solve the problem of pain on this planet. But that's not why he came. Nevertheless, it was in Jesus' nature to counteract the effects of the fallen world during his time on earth. As he stood through life, Jesus used supernatural powers to set right what was wrong. Every physical healing points back to a time in Eden where the physical body did not go blind or get crippled or bleed nonstop for 12 years. And also pointed forward, forward to a time of recreation to come. The miracles he did perform, breaking as they did the chain of sickness and death, give me a glimpse of what the world was meant to be and instills hope that one day God will right its wrongs. To put it mildly, God is not more satisfied, is no more satisfied with the earth than we are. Jesus' miracles offer a hint of what God intended it to be. Some see miracles as implausible suspensions of the laws of the physical universe. As signs, though, they serve just the opposite function. Death, decay, entropy, and destruction are the true suspensions of God's law. Miracles are the early glimpses of restoration. In the words of Moltmann, Jesus' healings are not the supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. 
You see, what Jesus is doing is he says, I'm a miracle worker, and he couldn't help himself. Look, he couldn't help himself because as Jesus was walking around and seeing the brokenness of the world, it could not help but ooze out of his things, his whole being, to say, I've got to turn this back to the way that it's supposed to be. And so when he saw the hurting and he saw the demon possessed and he saw those who were cast out and he saw those who were in need, his heart, his whole body could not help but go towards them to bring them into rightness, to bring them into wholeness. And in that, we get a glimpse of what the world was supposed to be and what it is going to be. What a beautiful thing that he is more than a miracle worker. He is the one who brings the world back to what God desired it to be. But that's not it. Not only does he do those two things, he also gives us a path of service as his people. We see this through faith. We see these friends who take their time, they move with action to bring about healing to their friend. They know that they need to get him close to Jesus, or at least that's what they think. We know later that Jesus just says, your daughter's healed, and boom, it's done. But they know that they need to get there. They know that they want to be with Jesus so that he can do it. And look, they get to the place of seeing Jesus, and they can't get in. And so they do everything they can. They throw the kitchen sink at the thing in order to get Jesus in front of their paralytic friend and their paralytic friend in front of Jesus. So much so that they disrupt everything and they drop him through the ceiling so that Jesus sees him there. Do you think Jesus feigned surprise? I wonder. Wouldn't that have been cool if Jesus just said, knew you were coming? (laughs) There it is. His friend is there. But he's only there because of his friends. You see, it's that place where we move from this relentless hope to an active hope. There's a a book called Active Hope, How to Face the Mess We Are In Without Going Crazy. And in it, they say this, active hope is a practice like Tai Chi or gardening. It is something we do rather than we have. It is a process that we can apply to any situation, and it involves three key steps. First, we take a clear view of reality. Something's broken. Second, we identify what we hope for in terms of a direction we'd like the thing to move or the values we'd like to see expressed. We want to see wholeness. And third, we take steps to move ourselves or our situation in that direction. Since active hope does not require our optimism, we apply it even in areas where we feel hopeless. The guiding impotence is intention. We choose that we aim to bring about act for it, or express it, rather than weighing our chances and proceeding only when we feel hopeful. We focus on our intention and let that be our guide. Now, these men had their friend who wanted wholeness. They wanted him to be able to walk. Their intention was to do that, and it seemed hopeless when they arrived. But they acted in a way that brought them to that place. Here's the difference. Jesus knew he needed more than just to walk. Jesus knew that he needed to be restored to complete health, to wholeness. 
And for us, we walk in a world that is broken. And yes, our intention should be be about bringing wholeness. It should be about restoration. It should be about living in our newness in Christ to those that are around us so that they can walk in newness as well. So we deal with external things. We deal with those problems that are outside. We help with those who are in addiction. We help with those who are hurting. But we know ultimately, if we just get them over their addiction or over their sickness or through their, that doesn't do all that they need. They need the wholeness of coming to this person in Jesus who is more than a miracle worker. What does this look like for us? Well, maybe it's best for us to look at Fabiola, who was one of the founding families of Rome. John Dixon tells her story in his chapter on miracles. You see, she was one of the wealthiest people, and she suffered greatly in an abusive marriage before gaining permission to divorce her husband. And at some point, she met some Christians who by this period could be found in all the ranks of imperial society. And she heard the news about Christ and devoted herself to the powerful, tender master we've read about in the Gospels. What Fabiola did next was extraordinary. She sold her entire holdings, turned it into cash, and devoted herself and all her resources to assisting the poor and the sick of Rome. She established what may well be the first public hospital in history. You see, hospitals at that point were part of the military apparatus of the empire. And of course, but the idea of throwing open the doors of a medical care for the whole population was novel. Remarkably, she tended to the people, not just with her money, but with her own hands. How often she carried on her own shoulders poor, filthy wretcheds, wretcheds, tortured by epilepsy, said one eyewitness. How often did she wash away the pus-like matter from the wounds which others could not even endure to look at. She gave food with her own hand, and even when a man was but a breathing corpse, she would moisten his lips with drops of water. She even expanded her operation beyond Rome to other places. Jesus is more than a miracle worker in that he saves us to become his miracle workers. He saves us to be those who walk into the broken world and do the same thing that he did while he was present. We work to take what is broken and make it whole. Now, the beauty is, is we know that it's only through the Holy Spirit that that's able to happen. And we also know that I'm never going to be able to take a broken leg and touch it and mend it. But I can certainly walk with you and help you get to where you're going. Because that's what God has called us to. See, he's more than a miracle worker in that he is the one who has and is and will make all things new as they always were. He is the savior and the sustainer of the world. Let me pray for us. Father, you are good and all you do is good. We thank you that you are more than a miracle worker. That you are a savior who came to us and you bring wholeness both physically and spiritually, emotionally. And we know that we will not see that wholeness or that completeness now. (laughs) So give us hope.
and faith to walk with you. And let us be the arms and the legs, the words of encouragement, the actions of healing that you call forth from us with your power and with your might. In Jesus' name we pray.